Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode begins with a series of updates and clarifications related to previous episodes. We talk a little bit about pro-hormones and steroids. We talk a little bit about fashion advice. And of course, we talk about olive oil-based desserts. That's followed by some very impressive feats of strength and then a research roundup segment where we talk about caffeine, napping, metabolic adaptation, and then interventions involving intuitive eating and mindful eating. After that, we have an article discussion segment where we honestly just kind of gripe about the sad state of peer-reviewed publishing. And then after that, Greg has a Q&A segment where he answers a number of different questions about training. Finally, you may recall from a previous episode that Greg discussed the spurious link between your personality type and the right intermittent fasting protocol for you. Well, in today's episode, Greg plays us out by educating us about yet another factor to consider when thinking about what intermittent fasting window you might pursue. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. We are back in the booth to record another banger, as the kids say. (laughs) Uh, Season four pushes forward. Uh, For today's episode, I'm joined by a very special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I am doing well. It's a beautiful day out there. Springtime in North Carolina. Sun shining. I love it. I had my coffee this morning. It was it was wild. I normally I go drink my coffee in the morning by a pond in like the, the nearby park. And like I live, you know, in a city. It's not like I'm out in the wilderness. There's a bunch of wildlife today. There's like this hawk that was chilling there and a bunch of turtles, a bunch of deer came by. It was a very atypical day. I don't know what was going on there. City of Oaks, baby. Absolutely. Those are uh, all critters one can find in a deciduous temperate forest. Yeah, it was lovely. You love to see it. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so good news. Let's start off with some good news. I'm going to kick things off. Uh, Starting out, (laughs) I saw this story, an anonymous donor used $1,000 in Dogecoin earnings to pay adoption fees at a Daytona animal shelter, uh, keeping the animal theme going here. So you love to see it. I, I get a kick out of all these stories, though, because it the entire concept of Dogecoin, it, it just doesn't seem like real life, and yet people are making actual wealth and uh, apparently doing some good things with it. So that's always nice to see. Yeah, it's it's a meme that also happens to be environmental terrorism. Uh, but if you can put that towards <laughs> uh, saving some animals, more power to you. Yeah, I, I do hate the... Uh, everything about the energy costs associated with uh, mining of cryptocurrency. But, uh, you know, we're going to try to pretend that there's good news, and that is part one. Part two. I I am on the good news segment to bring it down. Correct. Uh, And you never never fail. There is nothing I can do to... Or there's nothing I can't do to rain on your sunny disposition. Correct. Uh, That's okay. My gift. Point number two. I think this one's going to win you over. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw an article headline that McDonald's sales are back to pre-COVID levels. Hell so yeah. Profits uh, in the last three months have jumped almost forty percent. Uh, and I'm not usually one to uh, get really personally worked up when an enormous corporation makes a bunch of profits, but you know. 
you just love to see McDonald's back on top. They're an American fixture. And one of the things that's always gotten under my skin is that fitness people completely disparage McDonald's almost as if they have to. It's like kind of a knee-jerk reflex where people are like, do you like fitness? Yes. How much? I love fitness so much that I'm going to pretend McDonald's isn't absolutely delicious when in fact it is. Uh, And, you know, we were talking about this off the air. I I think that movie by Morgan Spurlock, Supersize Me, I I think that is what made people start treating McDonald's as if it was like its own class of poison, Uh, which I don't know. McDonald's is it tastes really damn good. And if you tell me it doesn't, then I am going to think that you're a liar. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like the the documentary itself was pretty ridiculous because it's just like, hey, I'm going to go out of my way to not exercise and eat 5000 calories a day. And guess what? A month later, I gained weight. It's not great. It's like no shit, dude. Uh, and, and like the thing, the barbs that they throw at McDonald's, it's like, oh, man, there's so much fat. There's so much sodium. It's like, yeah, that's why it fucking tastes good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, M- McDonald's is delicious, uh, and, and I, I love to see them succeed. Now, I don't want to be a hypocrite. It's been a while since I had McDonald's, so I, I don't want to... Now, if they want to sponsor the show, I can change that. I, I could eat McDonald's every day, but uh, but they are not a sponsor of the show, which is a shame, but uh, I haven't had it in a while, but it has a special place in my heart. I I've eaten enough McDoubles to, uh, to satisfy many lifetimes. So, uh, good to see them back on top. What do you have, uh, in the realm of good news this week? Yeah. So I, I have some good vaccine news and I'm not going the direction with this that you probably expect me to be. Well, I'm going the direction you in particular expect me to go. Cause you can see the outline. Uh, but This does not relate to COVID at all. Uh, It relates to malaria. So uh, malaria is still a very serious illness. A lot of people get it per year. Uh, A lot of people who are either very young, very old, immunocompromised, still die of malaria every year. Um, And one of the reasons that it's been such an issue is that it's... uh, I I saw a quote uh, in an article that... uh, Something along the lines of like uh, malaria vaccine trials are where good ideas go to die. It's just been very, very challenging to come up with an effective vaccine against malaria. Uh, And that's largely because malaria is caused by a parasite. Um, So, you know, most of the things that we have good vaccines for are caused by are caused by viruses or bacteria. Um and, you know, the vaccine manufacturers have a lot of tricks up their sleeves to figure out how to provoke an immune response that will help the body uh, fight off bacterial and viral infections. Uh, but, um, yeah, parasites are an entire different beast. They're much more complex. They're apparently way, way harder to develop a vaccine for. Uh, and there is a vaccine currently out there, but it's not very effective. Uh, It's certainly better than nothing, but uh, recent trials show that it's probably around 55% effective. Uh, But there is a new one coming down the pipe, and uh, results from a phase two clinical trial show that it is about 77% effective at uh, preventing malaria infections, uh, which is absolutely excellent. Uh, So, you know, lots of stuff that that 
performs well in phase two trials doesn't wind up uh, making it through phase three but currently it uh, it looks very optimistic very exciting uh, and I'm definitely hoping that pans out man those challenges that you described and the efficacy numbers it just makes you so much more grateful for the batch of covid vaccines that are out there like as disastrous as the pandemic has been the fact that we were able to get what like four or five really viable vaccines out there is that where we're at now i think globally it's more than that yeah it might be because there's Uh, pfizer moderna uh johnson and johnson astrazeneca which is currently on hold um everywhere I don't think everywhere, but a lot of places. But it, yeah. I, I think people are expecting that it will get rolled out again. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, th- those are just the ones in, from kind of like the Anglo world. Uh, there's also Sinovax and Sputnik. And oh, man, I feel like I feel like there was another one maybe developed in either Brazil or India. Uh, and I believe... Cuba either developed one or is currently in like late stage trials for one. So there's, yeah, I think there's like four that are getting pretty broad rollout currently and like uh, at least another four that are out there. Yeah. It's just, uh, man, you know, the fact that we, within a year, we are able to get uh, vaccines out there with the kind of efficacy numbers that they have is, is pretty remarkable. Uh, All right. So, Let's move on past the good news. Um, Got some updates and clarifications, actually quite a few. Uh, So I'm going to kick things off. So I mentioned pro-hormones on a previous episode. I forget which one, to be honest, but we're talking a little bit about pro-hormones and going back and forth about when they got banned and when they got taken off the market and stuff like that. And a quick shout out to Dr. Mike Lane. Uh, very strong gentleman, good friend of mine, very funny, also very smart. Uh, he is a professor of exercise science, really knows his stuff, uh, and, and he's a, a really solid lifter as well. Uh, but but he, uh, he kind of left me a voicemail and, and kind of jogged my memory about some of the timeline here, and it encouraged me to revisit the topic and kind of fill in the timeline. So 1990 was the Anabolic Steroids Control Act uh, that really shook up the recreational use of anabolic steroids. It's crazy to think of this now. You know, Greg, you and I were, uh, one of us is in our 20s, the other very old in our 30s. Uh, This is the first time I've actually said that I'm in my 30s. Uh, Man, (laughs) I feel really old very quickly here. Uh, But anyway, our entire lives, steroids have been a very bad thing in America, you know, treated as a controlled substance, just like any other extremely terrible street drug. And uh, it's crazy to think that there was a time not long ago where recreational use of anabolic steroids was a fairly typical thing and it wasn't it wasn't treated as a controlled substance. But, uh, you know, obviously in our lifetimes that, that has very much changed. So... Uh, People still liked to get big, even after steroids were, were officially labeled as uh, controlled substances. And so uh, then people start putting these designer steroids uh, on the market. And, you know, they, they weren't, you know, 
technically they weren't falling under the umbrella of what had been identified as controlled substances, but they were very much just uh, very specialized designer anabolic steroids. And so in 2004, notable painter George W. Bush and Congress instituted the Anabolic Steroid Control Act of 2004. They banned over-the-counter steroid precursors, increased a bunch of penalties, and they kind of added a big list of what is now, at that time, considered anabolic steroids. So they're trying to get uh, a lot of the designer steroids off the market. Uh, Now, people still enjoyed getting big, uh, believe it or not. And so even though they expanded this list of what was considered illegal controlled substances, it became popular for people to start making what you might call clones or other kind of like pro-hormone type uh, designer steroids, uh, which were functionally similar to a lot of the things on the banned illegal list. But technically, uh, you know, from a chemical perspective, they were distinct compounds. Uh, And so when I was really up to date with what people were doing in the bodybuilding world from like 2008 to 2010, the ones that everybody was talking about were H-Drawl and M-Drawl, also known as Super-Drawl. Those were the oral pro-hormones that were uh, all over the market. And uh, I don't know much about them, to be honest. Uh, What I hear is that they're pretty brutal for your liver. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, but anyway, people were, you you could get them like over just any supplement store over the counter uh, at that time. And, uh, and those were kind of the the pro hormones I was referring to in a previous episode where all these people like in the bodybuilding world, there were like the people who were natty. And then there were the people who were not natty. And then there was the like natty plus pro hormones crowd kind of in the middle. Uh, and, and that's what they were taking. And then in 2014, the Designer Anabolic Steroid Control Act was passed. Uh, and, and that basically expanded the list of anabolic steroids uh, and, and kind of it, it was like their their final attempt to say like, OK, we made our first list. You got around it. We made our second list. You got around it. We're making a very broad list now. Uh, and so that was the legislation in 2014 that really, uh, really did a number on the oral pro-hormone market, whatever was left of it after the, the 2004 legislation. So it's been a wild ride. And, you know, I, I've seen Rick Collins talk at a, a number of different conferences back when conferences, uh, you know, existed and you could go around the country and go to them. But, uh, you know, he, he always says in his presentations, uh, people really like getting big and they're going to continue to try to find ways to do it. And so even after uh, all these pro hormones got, uh, you know, taken off the market or at least really more aggressively pursued by, by the, the FDA uh, and related organizations, uh, people are still trying to innovate and put, you know, new stuff on the market that, that, that kind of just gets a little bit out of the letter of the law uh, and allows them to sell it. So that is the update related to pro-hormones, kind of an updated timeline there. Uh, Also an update and a clarification about fashion advice. So a while ago, we did a fireside chat and we answered a lot of questions about fashion. uh, And we mentioned that we're both pretty loyal to the George brand. Uh, George brand carried, I think, exclusively by Walmart. 
uh, really good when you consider the design, the quality, uh, the seemingly impossible prices. It, it almost seems like the finished products are worth less than the raw materials used to make them. Well, and and just the amount of drip. Yes, honestly, correct. Uh, so yeah, I've always been a George guy, and that's not going to change. But uh, I was in Michaels the other day. Uh, Michaels. For those who aren't aware, in America, Michael's is a chain of stores that sells like arts and craft supplies. I'm a crafty guy. I, I do all sorts of crafts. Uh, and so I was in there and I saw these shirts. And I mean, they were immaculate, really, really well done, uh, stylish shirts. Three for $10, hard to beat that deal for t-shirts. So uh, I revamped my wardrobe and I'm actually wearing one right now. This is a Michaels oh, man. shirt. And uh, I think it's going to be, you know, so I, I am still a George guy because I can only get my T-shirts at Michaels. But I guess I'm, I'm more of a George Michael guy now where I, I do some <laughs> George, I do some Michaels. And so that's my update. If you're, if you're trying to stay on the cutting edge of fashion, then uh, Michaels is worth a visit. It actually got me thinking. Uh, I'm an industrious guy. I'm an entrepreneur, and I've got that spirit just kind of oozing out of me. I'm thinking I might start making counterfeited Stronger by Science apparel. Uh, You know, the people want it. Uh, You and Lindsay have been dragging your feet, which is ridiculous. So I think I'm going to start like Trexler Apparel LLC and just start counterfeiting completely unlicensed Stronger by Science gear. So... Folks, keep an eye out for that. How how are you going to sell that gear? Uh, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Do you know the login info for our email service? Um, no. Okay, cool. Uh, so I had an update and clarification as well. Uh, very big mistake on my part, and I apologize in advance. A few episodes back, I recommended a recipe that people should check out and make for themselves if they have a sweet tooth that they want to sate. Uh, It's a recipe for olive oil blondies from Sola El Whaley. Very good recipe, still strongly recommend that, not going back on that in the least. However, in that segment, uh, my wife brought this to my attention. I did note that I had not had uh, other olive oil non-cake desserts, uh, and that is incorrect. I have both had and made lemon olive oil tarts before, um, which are exceptional. I forgot about them because the olive oil flavor doesn't come through, so uh, you use olive oil in the lemon curd in place of butter, uh, just because due to some food chemistry that I'm not going to pretend like I understand, uh, the tart citrus flavor just cuts through uh, like olive oil fat better than it does butter fat. So you get a, a brighter, crisper lemon flavor. Uh, but there there was olive oil in that dessert. It's not a cake. Uh, so I did mislead you about that. But if you tried Sola's olive oil blondies and you like them and you said, hey, I want some more olive oil in my life, uh, just Google uh, olive oil lemon tart. Um, America's Test Kitchen has a really, really good recipe for that. It's very simple. Uh, it's the easiest uh, citrus tart I've ever made, and it's so good. Uh, so if you and you know the weather's warming up, at least in the northern hemisphere, uh, you know if you want a good 
refreshing warm weather dessert, check out lemon olive oil tarts. They're delicious. Good stuff. Uh, moving on. Has anybody done anything strong lately? Yeah, yeah, a few people. Uh, so I'm going to save the best for last. And people who follow the strength sports world probably already know what that's going to be. Um, but I'm going to start with something that's also absolutely insane. Uh, so Jackson Powell, he is a teenage lifter who we've talked about on the podcast a few times. Very strong overall, but exceptionally strong squatter. Uh, recently posted a video of himself squatting uh, 925 pounds or 420 kilos for a double um, in training. And uh, I, I think he's prepping for a meet. I think he has a meet coming up later this month. Um, but yeah, he, he's 18 years old. He's a child. Uh, he might squat a thousand pounds before he graduates from high school. <laughs> it almost seems a sure thing that he's going to squat a thousand pounds as a teenager. Like he's got at least another year for that. Uh, regardless, absurdly strong, absolutely incredible. Uh, very, very impressive. Uh, moving on from the uh, Kern U.S. Open, Chad Pinson unseated uh, the great John Hack. Uh, totaling 996 and a half kilos or 2197 pounds uh, in the 198 pound or 90 kilo weight class to uh, win that weight class and I believe win uh, best overall at the meet as well. Uh, he also squatted a world record. So uh, in knee wraps, he squatted 400 kilos at 90 kilos. Uh, that's 881 pounds for Americans. Uh, and, and that's just bonkers. Um, he, <laughs> he came three and a half kilos away from totaling a thousand kilos, uh, at a body weight below 200 pounds. So just, uh, just bonkers shit all around. Uh, and congratulations to him. Also check out the videos from that meet. Uh, Chad Pinson is outrageously jacked. So also kudos to him for that. Uh, also from the current U.S. Open, uh, Hunter Henderson, a female lifter, competes at 165 pounds or 75 kilos. Uh, she set a world record with a 295 kilo or 650 pound squat in knee wraps. And uh, you should also check out the video for that. By the way, uh, we're going to start posting the videos in the show notes. Uh, Eric has had access to the videos this whole time. They are always posted in the outline. Uh, I've seen the comments saying, hey, where are the videos for Feats of Strength? That is the main host's fault uh, for not including them, not the temporary guest co-host, just so we're clear about that. But anyway, check out Hunter's Squat. Uh, it looked like an opener. Uh I mean, I don't know what it looks like when she misses, but she looked like she had at least 675, 680 in her. Uh, very, very impressive lift. Uh, and the second to last one I have on my list, I know I'm going to butcher this name, but uh, a, I believe, Russian lifter, Pavlo Nakonechny, uh deadlifted 435 kilos or 959 pounds for a triple in the gym. Uh, he was lifting equipped. I believe he, he has competed in powerlifting, but he primarily competes in strongman now. 
Uh, but yeah, 959 for a triple. Very, very strong. But uh, when checking out his Instagram, that actually wasn't the most impressive lifting he's done recently. For my money, he did a set of rows that was maybe more impressive than those deadlifts. Uh, it was 260 kilos or 573 pounds for like a reasonably strict set of six. Uh, so <laughs> for most people out there, uh, there is someone who can do relatively strict rows with your deadlift max. Uh, and that is both cool and terrifying. Uh, and then the last thing I have, again, if you follow strength sports, you knew this was coming. Lasha, my boy, the Georgian god of weightlifting himself. Uh, some videos came out of some training lifts. Uh, he snatched 225 kilos and clean and jerked 270. I believe both of those are... No, I, I don't believe. I'm... 99.999% sure both of those are the biggest weightlifting lifts ever called on video. Uh, in Freedom Units, that I believe is 496 pounds for the snatch and 595 for the clean and jerk. Uh, so he's two and a half kilos away from going 500, 600 in weightlifting, um, which is just bonkers. That's insane. He's so strong. Uh, you know, I just want to see him go 500, 600 at the Olympics. That would be so nasty. Yeah, that would be cool. Uh, but you did not put a video of his lift in the outline, so I, I don't accept any responsibility <laughs> if that doesn't make it into the show notes. I will add that video to the outline, but to be clear, all of the rest are already in there. So if you don't see at least four feats of strength videos in the episode description. Uh, send your hate mail to Eric Trexler. Perfect. All right. So moving on to some research stuff. I've got a quick research roundup segment this week. Uh, research roundup for people who are just joining us for the first time. Uh, welcome, by the way. Research Roundup, we just look at a few different uh, pieces of research, not super deep dives into them, but just kind of uh, hitting the highlights of some new research that's come out. So the first study I wanted to talk about, it was called Caffeine Use or Napping to Enhance Repeated Sprint Performance After Partial Sleep Depr Deprivation. Why not both? A good question indeed. Uh, so the purpose here was to compare... Uh, three different uh, interventions. Uh, the idea was you either take a 20-minute nap or you have a, a dose of caffeine, five milligrams per kilogram, a pretty uh, pretty generous dose of caffeine there. Or uh, the third intervention was a combination. So uh, having caffeine right before that 20-minute nap uh, and seeing how those would affect uh, repeated sprint performance again after a night of partial sleep deprivation. And if memory serves, I think during the nights of partial sleep deprivation, I think they got about four hours of sleep, give or take. Uh, so th that's usually about what they try to do uh, w with these types of studies. So uh, very straightforward study. And so the, the comparator groups here uh, that they were, you know, measuring these different interventions against, uh, one was just how well people performed after a normal night of sleep. And the other was uh, partial sleep deprivation plus a placebo. Uh, so they did a really nice job kind of deciding what uh, conditions they would do their testing under. 
and the results were pretty interesting. So first things first, uh, you might be wondering, uh, caffeine before a nap, how does that work? Because uh, usually caffeine induces wakefulness. Well, you can do a, a caffeine timing strategy where if the caffeine is consumed just before the nap, you're really not going to be getting a ton. You're, you're probably not going to reach your peak blood levels of caffeine until after that 20-minute nap is already over. So you actually can time that uh, pretty effectively. It's not like the moment you ingest caffeine, you're going to instantly be awake and alert and unable to nap. So you can time that up perfectly, but you do want to make sure you get that caffeine dose uh, just before the nap occurs. And you probably want to avoid, I would imagine, if you're going to try that strategy, you probably want to avoid caffeinated gum as your route of administration because that does tend to get into uh, circulation a little bit quicker than uh, caffeinated beverage uh, or a capsule or something like that. So uh, with this study, they had nine uh, highly trained judo athletes who uh, underwent all these different conditions in a crossover trial. And uh, the results were pretty interesting. So napping, just to kind of put it uh, in a nutshell, rather than going each outcome one by one, the general finding was that napping was actually uh, a little bit better than caffeine alone. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. A lot of people, uh, I think, would assume that caffeine, you know, because even in the absence of sleep restriction, caffeine does have an ergogenic effect. Uh, napping alone was actually a little bit better than caffeine alone within this context. But as you could kind of tell by the title, napping plus caffeine uh, took the gold medal here. It was actually uh, better than either treatment independently. So uh, I, I thought this was a really practical kind of quick, simple, to-the-point study. Uh, I'm sure we've all found ourselves there at one time or another where we're pretty sleep-deprived, but we don't want to skip the workout. We're trying to think, well, what should I do here? Should I just try to caffeinate my way through it, maybe take a nap? Uh, and as the title implies, why not both? It looks like both can be uh, a pretty good combined strategy. Now, moving on to another study, I'm going to save the metabolic adaptation one for for last. I'm going to go out of order with the uh, the outline here. Uh, the next one I want to cover is uh, the title is the influence of mindful eating and or intuitive eating approaches on dietary intake: a systematic review. Uh, now, when I talk about this study, I want to be very uh, clear that I'm not trying to like attack a straw man argument here. Um, I think a lot of people, when they see that uh, that title, you know, this study was looking at how intuitive eating or mindful eating specifically impact dietary intake. So the amount of food taken in and the quality of food taken in. And so a lot of people right off the bat would say like, dude, like, nobody's saying that intuitive eating or mindful eating are going to change your intakes. Like they're, they're not marketed as, you know, highly efficacious weight loss strategies to lower your calorie intake necessarily. Uh, it, in most applications, they're treated as a pretty weight neutral approach that doesn't uh, insist upon lowering your calorie intake or, or changing it in any direction. So uh, I have seen some people suggesting that intuitive eating or mindful eating are efficacious within that context. Uh, but certainly, I think a lot of people are going to be turned off just by the title alone, feeling that they're kind of attacking a straw man argument there. Um, but, you know, whenever we have uh, 
a strategy like mindful eating or intuitive eating, I think there's a tendency for it to become popular. Uh, and it certainly has. Uh, both of those strategies have become uh, relatively popular. And when we see the strategy, it becomes popular. And I think it also kind of represents something that people feel strongly about, which is kind of getting away from the ultra restrictive diet culture. I think it it can lead to a level of enthusiasm where people might start to kind of use the transitive property and say, okay, intuitive eating and mindful eating are good for this. Therefore, let's assume that they're just a pretty kick-ass intervention for all things I might want to do with them. So some people have been kind of implying that these are good strategies for reducing calorie intake or drastically altering uh, quality of food intake and things like that. So I think that's what the researchers were, were really trying to get at here. Um, now, they, they looked at... Uh, so I have a question. Sure. I don't... Uh follow the nutrition world closely which is to say at all uh but whenever i see intuitive eating pop up in my instagram timeline uh when it intrudes on the dog and meme content that i'm trying to consume on the platform uh i do often see people talk about it uh either with the slant of it's good for weight loss or it's good for weight loss maintenance. Like that, that's the frame that I always see it discussed in. So like, what do people promote it for? Yeah. Uh, so, like just, just you, you've, you've addressed that you're not trying to address that straw man, but from what I've seen, what you're saying is a straw man is the only frame I've ever seen it in. So what is the quote-unquote correct frame to yeah. discuss intuitive eating? In? So, like, I acknowledge that I do see that, but I, I think I'm trying to be extra charitable, perhaps. Um, but, but no, you, you do see people saying, like, oh, this is a great uh, strategy specifically for weight loss. But generally speaking, uh, these interventions are treated as pretty weight-neutral approaches, uh, and, and so like there, there was a good, uh, review by Clifford and colleagues. And no, they, yeah. Like I get that they're supposed to be weight neutral, but like theoretically, if you're using them as an intervention, yeah, they're supposed to do something good for you. Right. Yeah. So like yeah. what, what positive thing are they supposed to do? Yeah. So Clifford and colleagues, a different study. Okay. They, they found that, uh, intuitive eating and mindful eating type interventions enhance psychological outcomes for mm -hmm. folks. Uh, you know, lower depressive symptoms, uh, improve disordered eating patterns, uh, improve self self esteem, uh, improved emotional well being. Uh, usually, what you're trying to do with these types of interventions is specifically uh, enhance one's relationship with food and, and really kind of get out of that cluster of negative affect. Uh, depressive symptoms, anxiety related to food, how that ties into body image. This is more of an intervention that aims to alleviate some of the psychological distress associated with disordered eating habits or uh, perspectives toward eating that fall under that umbrella. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So, so a lot of times you see mindful eating and intuitive eating as things that are supposed to help people get back in touch with their satiety cues 
uh, and break away from, you know, really obsessive habits related to uh, strict control, uh, disordered eating habits, things like that. So yeah, the idea is to get more in touch with satiety cues, be more mindful of your meal experience. Uh, it can be helpful uh, in a variety of different contexts for people who struggle with negative body image, disordered eating, eating habits, binge eating habits, uh, and eating habits that are completely disconnected from physiological hunger. Okay. Uh, so, so that's what it's for. Uh, they, you know, if you ask anyone who uses it in a clinical setting, but if you ask it uh, anyone who like markets it in an attractive fitness setting of like, Hey, I've got a cool thing for you on Instagram. That's where you see a lot of it is like, ah, oh, this is a very efficacious weight loss program. I see. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, in, in this review, they looked at a total of 13 studies, uh, and cutting straight to the point, there was little evidence to suggest that mindful eating or intuitive eating, uh, really influence energy intake or diet quality. So, uh, the people who promote this, uh, in, in the way that you have interacted with on the internet, uh, are probably clear. I haven't interacted with it at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm like David Attenborough, yeah. <laughs> uh, ob- observing diet culture in its natural habitat. Like me and my hawk this morning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I look, but don't touch, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, the people who are pushing these interventions in that context are probably getting a little ahead of themselves. Maybe they're the innovators that are ahead of the science, uh, that has happened before, but the science so far has not caught up with their marketing, uh, and who knows if it will. Uh, but again, I just want to reiterate that that doesn't mean that there's no place for mindful eating interventions or intuitive eating interventions. Uh, like I said, uh, there's good research indicating that these interventions can enhance psychological outcomes, reduce depressive symptoms, reduce disordered eating patterns, improve self-esteem, improve emotional well-being, and help people get back in touch with being present and mindful during their eating and really adhering to their physiological satiety cues uh, in a much more connected way. So there can be some really positive things here, um, but you know, when we look at this literature, we don't see significant uh, consistent changes in energy intake, diet quality. We don't see uh, significant changes in body weight, blood pressure, blood glucose, cholesterol. Uh, so it, it has a place. It, it can be an efficacious intervention, but only for the things that it's really targeting. Uh, and this is uh, not inherently a weight loss strategy. Uh, so the final thing I wanted to cover in the research roundup relates to the old hobby horse, metabolic adaptation. Uh, so I wrote an article for Stronger by Science on the website that's a million pages long. It's the first ever million page article. Uh, it is very, very long and it covers a lot about adaptive thermogenesis and metabolic adaptation and things like that. And so whenever a new paper comes out on the topic, People often reach out to me, they send it to me, and they say, what do you think about this? And so this was one of those cases. Uh, the title of the paper was, Does Adaptive Thermogenesis Occur After Weight Loss in Adults? A Systematic Review. Uh, and some people 
encouraged me to write about this for mass, but I opted not to. And the reason was, uh, Greg, I'm sure you can relate to this. A lot goes into selecting what article you want to choose for mass. Uh, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're choosing an article that is going to be highly beneficial to readers, uh, with, with some good practical applications. Um, and, and so when I looked through this particular paper, it was very technical, very nuanced. And when I look at the takeaways that I got from the paper, it they weren't takeaways to help a trainer do a better job with their clients. They weren't takeaways to help a dieter have more success. They were takeaways for how a researcher ought to design the next study on metabolic adaptation. And so I didn't want to take our, our poor readers through this ultra nuanced look at the literature, ultimately to say... Uh, I hope the researchers account for this stuff in the future. I, I didn't think that that was enough of a payoff. And uh, as you often say, the, the juice was not worth the squeeze uh, for a mass article. But quickly looking at it, uh, you know, I do want to at least give an answer to the people who sent this to me and wanted my feedback on it. So uh, looking through this paper, there were some areas of agreement uh, where I definitely agree with the perspective of the researchers who wrote this paper. Uh, first of all, this literature is very, very nuanced. That's something that we definitely agree on. Number two, energy balance, uh, acute energy balance matters in a big way. So when you're looking at metabolic adaptation, it matters if you're uh, measuring people who are in negative energy balance at the time of measurement or positive or, or neutral energy balance. That's a huge consideration that alters the measurement in a big way. Uh, number three, uh, I believe I agree with the authors. I, I, I guess I should say I believe they agree with me that metabolic adaptation uh, is observed during active weight loss, uh, but it does tend to be smaller uh, when energy balance is restored. And that's specifically when we're looking at resting energy expenditure. We, we could see a pretty big adaptive drop during active weight loss in negative energy balance. But once that individual is weight stable and back in energy balance, that deficit in the resting component of energy expenditure uh, is uh, largely closed. It, it tends to be a lot closer to predicted once energy balance is restored. Uh, number four, the resting metabolic rate component uh, when it comes to metabolic adaptation is less impactful than when we look at something like non-exercise activity thermogenesis or total daily energy expenditure. Number five, measuring individual organ mass is great if you have the ability. So these researchers pointed out that some of the studies, instead of just uh, looking at predicted metabolic rate based on total fat-free mass or total lean mass, they measured body comp via MRI. And so they were able to go in and say, well, the resting metabolic rate, the metabolic activity of a kidney is different than that of a heart, which is different than that of a liver. So they could actually calculate based on organ size, those tissue specific metabolic rates, which is really great if you can do it. Uh, takes a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of time. But, but if, you can, if you can do it, I agree with the, the authors of this review. That's a really nice thing that enhances your predictive ability. Number six, I agree with them that metabolic adaptation is not an insurmountable barrier to weight loss or the maintenance of weight loss. It is, uh, it induces a little friction, but 
if if planned for, you know, it can absolutely be overcome and attenuated and circumvented. Uh, and number seven, uh, metabolic adaptation is not the primary contributor driving weight regain. Uh, it doesn't help. <laughs> you know, it, it you would like your energy expenditure to be higher if you're trying to prevent weight regain. Uh, but I think there are far more impactful things at play. And when we look at uh, research that actually does try to use regression to predict in our sample what was driving weight regain, it's usually not a reduction in resting energy expenditure. Uh, you know, I, I think a reduction in non-exercise activity probably contributes, but is often harder to measure than resting energy expenditure. Uh, I think reductions in fat-free mass uh, can lead to some pretty excessive hunger after the weight loss period and during the weight loss period. Uh, there's a lot of good research by Delu and colleagues looking at the effect of deficits in fat-free mass and how they drive specifically appetite during and after a weight loss attempt. So, uh, And then there's all the psychological factors that go along with trying to maintain these behavioral changes for, for the long term. Uh, and, and of course, the psychological factors of you know, if you've really been restricting food for a long time, your psychology can go nuts. I, I've talked to people, this is honest, it's probably not going to sound true, but it is. Some people late in a contest prep, when they're getting really lean and they're in the deepest throes of metabolic adaptation and they've been restricting food for a very long time, they're on very low calories, they will start to hoard kitchen gear so like people will go and buy kitchen appliances that they can't even really make use of yet because they're just like, oh, dude, in six weeks, I'm going to eat so much food and I have 300 recipes I'm going to try. I've actually heard of people gathering up kitchen gadgets in preparation for when they're going to be able to explore all these new recipes again. So there's some weird psychological stuff that goes on with weight loss. You're going to need to cut this from the final episode. Why is that? Well, because... If Lindsay hears this, she will never let me embark on my eventual road to the stage because we don't have room for more kitchen gadgets. No, you don't. That, that was that's a, an ongoing debate uh, within your household, and I, I think I think Lindsay's right. You you already have too many kitchen gadgets. I really need a food dehydrator. That yeah, you you can get that. Okay. Uh, now there were some areas of disagreement. Those were kind of the the big highlights of the paper that I could definitely get on board with. Um, a small point that, that I would bring up, they were kind of, uh, simultaneously making a couple points, which is, uh, accounting for organ tissue has a huge impact on minimizing the importance of what is perceived to be metabolic adaptation. But at the same time, they're saying after the active weight loss period, metabolic adaptation totally goes away. And they never really, in my opinion, tied together how that works. It, it seems like they were kind of pinning it on these two different things. But if you're losing a great deal of organ mass during the diet and then stabilizing a neutral energy balance, and we're saying that the loss of that organ mass is a big contributor to what we think is this adaptive drop, uh, I mean, I, I don't see that organ mass being promptly regained in, in a post-weight loss, weight-neutral state. So I, that was one thing, a very minor point that I, I think warranted a little additional clarification. Well, I mean, I, I think it depends on how you're defining metabolic adaptation. Well, be yes. Be because if you're defining it as 
like, hey, do all of my tissues still uh, burn through calories per unit of mass at the same rate they did before, then like, you know, their point is well taken. You lose organ mass, but per unit of mass, those organs are still burning through calories at the same rate. Bada boom, bada bing, no metabolic adaptation. But if you're defining it as like calories per pound of body weight or calories per pound of total lean mass, but now organ mass has dropped off a lot and now maybe it's like a smaller total proportion of lean mass, like your, you know, global pool of lean mass might be burning fewer calories per pound now. Uh, so you would say, oh, there is metabolic adaptation. So I, it, to me, it just seems like a, a matter of how one is defining terms. Yeah, well, so the the two points that they're kind of simultaneously making in different kind of areas of the paper, one is like, oh, this metabolic adaptation, the difference between predicted and actual resting energy expenditure, it's an artifact of us not accounting for that loss of organ mass. That's why we have this discrepancy between measured and predicted uh, to some extent. But then saying, well, after the active weight loss, if you just stay at your weight reduced state, eventually that that gap will clear itself up. I don't see I, I don't expect that you would have substantial kind of rebound gains of those organ tissues when settling at that body weight. So I don't understand how those two work in unison. And I, you know, I, I certainly don't set out to miss willfully misinterpret uh, their statements or, or the points of the article. So perhaps I just missed it, but it seemed like those were two things that in and of them, like independently, I think both are good points, but when you put them together as like a unified model of how we're over predicting it, but then, you know, it kind of levels out over time. I wasn't really certain how they put those two things together. Uh, but, but that was a very minor point that I don't want to dwell on too much because I think there's bigger points to, to discuss. Uh, so the, the bigger points, first of all, uh, viewing metabolic adaptation as kind of a dichotomous outcome, like it either is present or not present. I think in some cases they kind of fell into that and they're like, oh, well it was present, but it is no longer. Therefore, boom metabolic adaptation vanished over time and in reality it was like there was you know 200 calories of metabolic adaptation but it dropped to 175 and was no longer significant and therefore the adaptation's gone and it's like well no that was a very minor partial attenuation not a complete disappearance but if you're basing it on the p-values it went from existing to not existing that was a major limitation that i saw in a few instances throughout the paper uh and you know again in some cases uh you know we're kind of viewing this small attenuation as a complete blunting uh and treating metabolic adaptation as if it was just kind of like a measurement error uh and i just didn't think that they really were looking at the magnitudes of the effects and, and kind of interpreting them with the degree of nuance you would want to apply to those things. So a few examples to kind of demonstrate what I'm getting at here uh, in concrete terms. So they looked at a paper uh, by Carl in 2016. Um, and so, you know, this was an, an instance where they're like, okay, well, after uh, weight maintenance, the metabolic adaptation goes away. So 
at the end of the active weight loss phase, uh, resting metabolic rate was 6.5% lower than baseline. Uh, and then at the end of the next phase, the weight maintenance phase measured, retim- measured, uh, resting metabolic rate was 6.2% lower than baseline. So, uh, they lost all this weight and then they had a weight maintenance period, uh, 6.5% below baseline during phase two. And that at that point, they're saying, yes, metabolic adaptation is present. Very bad thing. And then after weight maintenance, it's still 6.2% lower than baseline. And they're saying, oh yeah, it's not significant. Uh, you know, so no more metabolic adaptation. They were a very similar weight and their resting metabolic rate was very similar. So treating that as metabolic adaptation going away I just don't think there's much of a leg to stand on there. Uh, another one that got me. So there was a study by Marlat in 2017, and it was the only study looking at total daily energy expenditure, not resting metabolic rate. The only one looking at total daily energy expenditure that didn't report significant metabolic adaptation. Now, this was a two-year follow-up from a study by Ravusen in 2015. Uh, so in the original study, it was like this, uh, 24 month weight loss intervention. Uh, and so the calorie restricted group in this original study, they lost like all their weight pretty much in the first six months, huge drop in the first six months, then another little drop from six months to 12 months. And then from 12 to 24, the intervention continued, but they actually had a slight weight regain, very, very minor, but basically they lost a bunch of weight, about eight kilograms, and maintained it from month 12 to month 24, approximately maintained it. Now, if you look at month 12, when they were really at their lowest weight uh, during this weight loss attempt, uh, there was like definitely metabolic adaptation in this original study. So total daily energy expenditure was 250 calories below what it was predicted to be. Now, in that period from month 12 to month 24, when they were effectively doing weight maintenance, body weight uh, actually increased a little bit during that time, uh, and they were still trying to maintain their, their typical behaviors that induced the weight loss. That gap between uh, measured and predicted total energy expenditure, it, it, again, at month 12, it was like minus 250. At month 24, it was like minus 240. Uh, that persisted. Uh period. And both of them were statistically significant, P less than 0.01. Both of those instances, there was metabolic adaptation. Now, what they argue in the follow-up paper was that after a maintenance period, the metabolic adaptation effectively goes away. But there's two big problems with that. Uh, So first of all, they gained a substantial amount of weight in that follow-up period. So it's quite likely that they are being measured uh, in positive energy balance, which is a pretty big consideration to keep in mind. But the more important thing is that total daily energy expenditure was measured with different methodology. (laughs) And so like, (laughs) that's a huge deal. And so like, if you want to know within that study, if the metabolic adaptation went away during weight maintenance, Look from month 12 to 24. Everything was measured the same way. It was a continuous intervention. And during that period of actual slight weight regain, the metabolic adaptation persisted there. When they looked in the follow-up study, it was gone, but they were measuring total daily energy expenditure with a completely different method. Uh, 
And that is a huge deal. So, I mean, like I used to do uh, body comp testing, right? And so we would do put somebody on the DEXA, walk them about 40 yards down the hallway and put them in the bod pod. And what do you know? Their body fat went up 2%. The, the conclusion there is not that that is a hell of a hallway that somehow puts 2% body fat on you when you walk down it. The conclusion is, these two different methodologies are not similar enough that we can interpret the change from one to the other as a longitudinal change over time with perfect precision. So uh, that was another one that kind of jumped out to me. And then my final one, I want to get back to the organ thing. So uh, there's a study by Bosey Westfall in 2009. I I just want to comment. Okay. I love it when you dichotomize a continuous outcome. I think that's so cool. Yeah. It's best practice. It makes things perfectly clear and interpretable to everyone. Uh, and I don't see any problem with it whatsoever. Perfect. Uh, so this... No. So, I mean, th- that's one of my little hobby horses because, uh, like, the same, the same like, debate took place with uh, hypertrophy research. Um, you know, and, and you'll still see people make claims like, oh, it takes uh, eight weeks of training for hypertrophy to occur. And it's like, no, like most studies fail to detect statistically significant hypertrophy within or prior to eight weeks. It's not like you weren't growing and then two months after you start training, boom, jacked. Like you just don't have the measurement precision to pick up on the gradation. So like, you know, it it takes a while for enough hypertrophy to occur for it to be reliably measurable. Uh, But yeah, like I'll see, I'll I'll still see that repeated in the literature all the time. Like, yeah, uh, nah, like you you need eight weeks or whatever. And it's like, no, like that's, that's not how it works. This is a continuous outcome. uh, And based on the precision of the measurements and the statistical power of the studies, like, you just don't have the power to detect it prior to that point. Like, yeah, but it's not like it's not occurring. Yeah. The hypertrophy one's a good example. Cause I mean, that's in all the textbooks too. It's like hypertrophy doesn't begin until eight weeks is kind of how it's often written there. And it's like, well, that's statistically significant. Hypertrophy is not detectable with current methods until you've accumulated about eight weeks worth of hypertrophy. Yeah. But like if you had a study with like, 2000 subjects and you were using MRI, it's probably detectable in like a week and a half. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With with typical sample sizes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so this this last example here, Bosey Westfall, 2009. So, uh, you know, kind of one of the implications or, you know, I've seen a lot of chatter about this paper and they're like, oh, dude, if you account for organ tissue, like metabolic adaptation is just measurement error. Like if you account for the organ tissue, it goes away, fully explains it. This is a myth. Uh, now, when you look at uh, the study by Bosey Westfall, after weight loss, uh, 50% of the drop in resting energy expenditure was explained by losses in fat-free mass and fat mass. The other 50% was this kind of unexplained adaptive drop in energy expenditure. So 50% explainable from changes in body mass, 50% unexplained. Uh, What they found was after you consider the weight of the individual organs, the amount that was explained by changes in body composition went from 50% to 60%. 
And so then the unexplained metabolic adaptation component dropped from 50% to 40%. Uh, so again, I I don't think the authors necessarily misinterpreted that, but uh, I think a lot of people, when they kind of looked over the abstract, saw the chatter about it, they said, oh God, if you account for organ mass, metabolic adaptation is a total myth. It's a measurement error. It's an artifact. Uh, but it's not. It's just we can enhance our precision of what the predicted energy expenditure ought to be if we can account for it with with greater precision, uh, account for those organ weights. So uh, in conclusion, you, you look like you're about to say something. Yeah, I mean, also, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a, a 10% increase in variance explained. I'm assuming, you know, you're putting another variable in a multiple regression model. Uh, and, and so this is a straw man. I'm not claiming that the auth- that uh, Bozy Westfall did this. Like, I, I do think including changes in organ mass, you know, a priori, that's probably a decision that was made. And I I absolutely think that's a justifiable decision. But if you added like shoe size to a multiple regression model, you will explain more variation than if you didn't. Uh, Like, that's how it works. Just just plugging more variables in will increase the amount of variance explained. Uh, And in, in a situation like this, you know, if you're already explaining 50% just based on uh, changes in fat-free mass and fat mass, if you went from explaining 50% of the variance to, like, 85, then I'd say, like, okay, cool. Like, you know, 15%, maybe that's measurement error, uh, day-to-day variability, whatever. But when you're going from 50% to 60%, that's a sh- that's a ton of variance that's still unexplained. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the takeaway from that study is not like, oh, wow, uh, turns out metabolic adaptation is just measurement error. It's, oh, we can get a more precise estimate of it if we account for organ mass, uh, yeah. which, which I fully agree with. So, um, yeah, the, the, a lot of the chatter surrounding uh, this study was like, did you know that metabolic adaptation like kind of maybe doesn't happen? And even if it does, uh, you can fully explain it by changes in organ mass. And then even if it does, it goes away over time. You can see how if we treat metabolic adaptation as a dichotomous variable, if we look specifically at resting energy expenditure rather than total energy expenditure, which incorporates non-exercise activity, which is by far the most impacted uh, aspect of energy expenditure, if we start making this kind of series of reductions and simplifications, we can work our way to some of those conclusions, but ultimately they are, in my opinion, erroneous conclusions. Uh, I think the, the the value from this paper, which was well done, it was, it was a nuanced review of this literature, uh, the real conclusions are for researchers moving forward. If you're going to study this, what do you need to do? You need to measure people in energy balance to the best of your ability. You need to, when possible, look at total energy expenditure rather than just resting energy expenditure. If you have the ability, accounting for organ mass is a really fantastic thing to do. So I think this is a very valuable paper, but I do think it's one of those instances where the value got lost by a lot of readers and the chatter was a little bit overly reductionist. Uh, And one final parting comment about this, uh, which was my first response before I looked into the organ mass stuff. I was thinking, so what if what if accounting for a loss of organ mass, what if that explained away all of metabolic adaptation? And I was like, well, 
what the hell do I tell a client? Because <laughs> it's like, oh, damn, I can't eat anything. I'm hungry as hell. My energy expenditure has dropped a lot. I'm in a really bad spot here because I want to keep losing weight, but I can't keep losing weight on the calories that I'm comfortable with. And I have to keep on cutting because my energy expenditure is low. Am I supposed to look at them and say, oh, don't worry. It's because your kidneys are smaller. Does that fix it? Like that's not a, from a practical perspective, that's not helpful in any way. If we just tell somebody like, oh, hey, by the way, all your organs are going to shrink and it's going to suck. That's not practically any less shitty than just saying like, yeah, for some unexplained reason, your your energy expenditure is going to drop. You know, I don't know that that's true. Like, so I, I feel like if I went back 10, 15 years to when I didn't know anything about physiology, I I would feel like, you know, almost like the, I personally want to know everything that's happening with anything that I do. Like, yeah. I, I don't like having un- unanswered questions. And so I would, f- so, okay, like I'm in a, I'm in a deficit. Uh, my energy expenditure is clearly dropping. What used to be sufficiently low calories to lose weight no longer is, um, and, you know, it feels like the decrease in energy expenditure is disproportionate to the amount of weight that I've lost. I could see myself, like, going online and being like, ah, oh, what's happening? Uh, and, and I feel like if I came across the concept of metabolic adaptation or, you know, if we're talking 10, 15 years ago, that's kind of like the heyday of starvation mode and metabolic damage and all of that stuff. I, I would see myself potentially thinking, like, oh, something pathological is happening. You know, like yeah. the tissues of my body that are supposed to be, you know, <laughs> working at X rate are now working at like 80% of the capacity they should be able to work at. And I don't know anything, but that seems bad. You know, that seems like something negative is happening. Uh, but if it could be explained to me like, hey, you're losing weight, you're mostly losing fat, maybe you're losing a little muscle, but, you know, you simply don't need as big of a liver or as big of kidneys to support a smaller body. Those are very metabolically active tissues. You're losing some mass from that, and that is decreasing your energy expenditure by quite a bit. All of your organs are still working exactly as they're supposed to. Uh, There's just less of them. I feel like that would give someone like me peace of mind. Yeah, I, I could see that, um, especially if we're setting up a dichotomy where there either is this organ-related answer or there is no answer, you know? Um, but my, my perspective, perhaps I'm too close to this literature, I have found a lot of the stuff that uh, like Rosenbaum and, and Liebel, like what they explain in their 2010 review to be very intuitive, very comprehensive explanations of what's going on in a non-patholo- non-pathological presentation. So so from my perspective, if I'm saying like, oh, it's not that you have a drop in leptin that's impacting these various uh, uh, aspects of energy metabolism, it's instead that you have a drop in organ mass that's affecting metabolism. Perhaps for some people that's a little bit more tangible and can give a little more peace of mind, but at the end of the day, uh, in terms of the practical application of what you do with that information, 
I'm not sure if it necessarily gives us any additional avenue to pursue there. So, I mean, I'll, I'm all for getting better understandings of, of you know, how we explain these drops in energy expenditure. And like I said, overall, I, I think it's a valuable paper. And, and I, I think it's, uh, I, I think they had some really good points and some good nuance to it. Uh, but, but I did think it was kind of funny that, uh, you know, the, the kind of, uh, takeaway that a lot of people were getting at is like, oh, it's totally fine. It's just that you lose organ mass and you can't do anything about it and your energy expenditure is low. Because a lot of a lot of the messages I get from people who are worried about metabolic adaptation, it's just how do I get more calories? You know, mm-hmm. and so it, mm-hmm. it's not going to do much for that crowd. Uh, but but for the very uh, curious crowd, uh, yeah, anything that we can add that explains a little bit more of it, I think, is a positive thing. No, yeah, I, I think that we. Uh... I think that our audience and the people that we directly interact with probably aren't perfectly representative of the general fitness industry. Like, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think most people who are in our audience are probably the people who are more just kind of like results oriented and realize like, hey, I'm going to go into a deficit. It's not going to be particularly pleasant. Uh, I'm going to have to eat less and less and less. And like, that's fine. But I do think, I mean, like I mentioned, uh, not all that long ago, you'd see people talking about like, quote unquote, starvation mode right. all the time. Like th- that is something that, you know, you don't see people talking about in our niche of the fitness industry much at all anymore. But like people in the broader fitness industry, uh, like th- that idea still has a lot of purchase. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people who kind of have this impression that something's wrong with them, you know, something that needs fixing, yeah, uh, which, yeah. which of course creates this kind of opening for people to fill that and say, oh, well, I actually have what you need, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm going to market that I can cure you of your ailment. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely with you on that. Uh, but, you know, while we're arguing and getting contentious, uh, th- this is a good opportunity to shift to the next part of the outline here. Uh, and I guess probably just address the most controversial stronger by sen- by science content of all time. Uh, I kind of wanted to open the door for you to, I guess, apologize or clear the air for the controversial content you've been putting out. What content? The study list. Oh yeah. Um... Oh man, yeah, this one uh this one kills me cuz so okay. Uh there is a page on Stronger by Science. Uh I think the URL is strongerbyscience.com/studies-archive. Uh and basically so uh I used to do a monthly journal sweep for mass. So we have a list of uh, it was about 120 journals. I think now it's up to about 145 uh, that we would go through every month and just pull out all of the studies that, uh, you know, w- we thought there was any chance whatsoever we might want to review for mass. And also that, you know, I thought that there was any chance whatsoever maybe uh, I'd want to write about for Stronger by Science or, you know, these days that we might want to talk about on the podcast. So it, it's a kind of broad net. Um, but also, I thought it was a good resource to put out in the world. Because the thing is, like, the journal sweep takes a shitload of time. Uh, 
if I'm really scooting, maybe like 10 to 12 hours, uh, more realistically, since I start uh, yearning for the sweet embrace of death midway through, eh, you know, I'd lose some productivity and it would take like maybe 16, 18 hours. Uh, so, you know, a lot of work and a lot of people are, are interested in research and they want to know what's coming out. Uh, so I figured like, hey, I'm already doing this. I want to save people time. They can just use the journal sweep I'm already doing, so they won't have to do this bullshit for themselves. Uh, you know, I'll just put it on a page on the website, link out to some Google Docs that that have uh, the the studies I pulled out for this month, and also all of the past journal sweeps. So, you know, if someone wants to save some time and spend 45 minutes scrolling through a list of three, four hundred studies instead of three work days scrolling through uh, 150 journals. Like, cool, they can do that. And to be clear, I don't do the journal sweep anymore. Um, Kedrick Kwan and Colby Souza do it these days. Uh, but I, I did that for several years and hated every minute of it. So They, they do a great job, by the way. Yeah, and, they and they, they do exactly they, what we ask them to do. Yeah, they, they do an excellent job. Um, yeah, so, you know, figured, hey, this is this is a nice thing that I can do. Uh, save people time, put this out there. Uh, almost every month, at least one person gets really ass mad about it. People hate it. Um, people are very angry that we're doing this. No, like m- most people love it. Like that that page gets a lot of traffic. Uh, almost every time I pull up the spreadsheets to update them with the most recent months, like I see several people on the spreadsheets. Like they they get a lot of use. Um, I, I do think that they're a resource that a lot of people who create content in our space use. And if you do create content in the evidence-based fitness world, uh, avail yourself of that resource. It's free and always will be. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> I think most people like it, but there is a very vocal minority that just fucking hates it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to elaborate that much no, more. It's, but it's just uh, I, I just get a kick out of it every yeah. single month. Somebody is very <laughs> angry, specifically at you, and, and it and it runs the gamut. So uh, you know, some people will be like, "Oh, there's 400 studies on this list. Who could possibly find the time to go through all of them?" And then there will also be like, "Oh, I have this hyper specific research niche, and I looked through and." Uh, you know, you included five of the studies in my little niche that I'm interested in on your list, but there were in fact two more that I think were cool that were not on your list. You fucking charlatan! Uh, yeah, that that was the the one that got me the the most was somebody indicating that somehow this was like an intellectually dishonest enterprise that you were running, and it's like, dude, it's just studies that I think I might want to use. Oh yeah, the, so uh, this most recent month, someone. What phrase did they use like half a dozen times? Uh, it, it lent itself to catch penny works, which I didn't even know that word. Yeah, neither did um, I. I assumed it wasn't good. I think it's British, uh, but but basically it's like clickbait. So you yeah. know if if uh, you know someone just wants to look f- look for resources to put out the shallowest content possible to make a quick buck. <laughs> Um, and like in fitness, you don't need studies for that. Yeah. Yeah. So one, that's ridiculous. Like if someone wanted to just like cherry pick some bullshit to like make a point and sell an ebook, 
that's going to take you about five minutes on PubMed. Yeah. Uh, scrolling through 400 studies per month for several months until you find the studies you want. Not particularly efficient. No. Uh, and two, like, I never claim that it's a list of every fitness study that has ever existed. Uh, don't it, don't claim it's, that it's systematic. Don't yeah, it's, claim that it's comprehensive. It's a list that I ju- that I find useful that I think other people will find useful. But yeah, boy oh boy, people are mad about it. No, I mean the the basic uh, approach to all of the criticisms of the page is like, imagine if you went to review a world class pizza restaurant and your review is just like you know what honestly I was in the mood for cheeseburgers and <laughs> that pizza. Was not a cheeseburger, so I hated it. Uh, okay, but I did have some actual controversial stuff that I wanted to discuss in a, a little article review segment. Uh, very, very brief here. Just stuff that I am genuinely tickled by. So two things that uh, unfortunately are COVID-related, uh, but it, it is the magnet for shoddy stuff these days. So uh, there was... A paper floating around uh you actually encountered it in the wild but, i did yeah but yeah there's a paper floating around it was in a pubmed index journal which means if you were arguing about this you could give the pubmed link to this study by number one global publisher elsevier yeah and so the the general vibe of the article it was about mask wearing and it was like Listen, man, if you wear a mask, very dangerous. A lot of bad things will happen. Uh, bad for your health. Very scary stuff. Probably shouldn't be wearing a mask is kind of the general the general vibe I got from a brief skim. Uh, is, is that uncharitable? Is that pretty much? Yeah, that, that it would. Uh, I, I think what they were arguing basically was that it would cause uh, respiratory acidosis, which would therefore cause heart disease and cancer and uh, people would die. Yeah, so here's the deal. Uh, It was shoddy and bad and stupid. Uh, Wearing a mask uh, for a healthy individual is not going to do all those scary things. Uh, And so generally speaking, the sales pitch for the existence of peer-reviewed journals is like, listen... The general public doesn't have the skills, the tools necessary to go through these studies and determine what is good sh- good scholarship and rigorous work uh, with robust conclusions. It, it's they don't have the tools and skills required to separate that from, you know, they can't distinguish the good from the bad. So we have to do that for them. We we will take that upon ourselves. We will have this rigorous peer review process. Uh, experts will critically and very. Uh, enthusiastically and aggressively go through this material to make sure that it is very good scholarship. If it is, we'll publish it. And, you know, then people can look at that and say, okay, this got through peer review. This is going to be some good stuff. Uh, And then even the people out there who do have the skills uh, necessary to discern good scholarship from bad might, might not have the time to, you know, open every paper uh, and and just say, I'm going to start from square one here and do a thorough review. You know, Peer review, that stamp of approval is theoretically supposed to mean something. Uh, But the growing trend that I'm seeing in other fields, uh, which is I'm starting to see it some in ours, is that journals are just publishing stuff that is objectively stupid such that the lay public knows it's stupid. 
and then just goes on Twitter and says like, hey, this is very stupid. And then the journalists have to say like, ah, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's pretty stupid. And then they have to retract it. Uh, so I, I've seen a, I've seen this happen a lot in other fields. But basically, the, the trajectory that this paper took was like, it was very bad. And people <laughs> who are not experts in the area could tell that very easily. Uh, and then people with expertise in the area could also verify, yes, this is very dumb. Uh, but the reason it's uh, Elsevier said that they're going to retract it, but I think the main reason they're going to retract it is because the author claimed to be affiliated with a university that they're not affiliated with. Uh, and so the university was like, please stop sending us hate mail. We do not employ this person. They do not work for us despite what they say. Uh, and, and so Elsevier, uh, th that's very easy grounds for retracting a paper. Uh, but honestly, I don't know if there wasn't an untrue affiliation listed. I don't know if it actually would have gotten retracted. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, do we want to talk about the paper in a little bit more detail so it won't sound like we're just taking random pot shots at it? Uh, not. I mean, do you want to go into it? I mean, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be quick. Sure. So uh, the thing to note is that the study was published in a journal called Medical Hypotheses. Uh, and Medical Hypotheses does not work the same way most journals work. So in most journals, you'll come across... Uh, you know, cross-sectional research where you collect data on something and, uh, you know, look for associations, or they'll publish uh, narrative reviews, which are review articles. They don't do a systematic search, but they try to give uh, as fair as possible of an overview of a subject. They might do systematic reviews or meta-analyses. We talk about those all the time. Uh, they might publish experimental research where you recruit samples, split them up, do an intervention, etc. But like, you know, you, normal science shit. Like that's what gets published in most journals. What medical hypotheses is for is basically to float ideas where there's... Uh, Definitely not enough solid evidence for a systematic review and meta-analysis. And really, there isn't even enough solid evidence to do a narrative review. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is a journal for hypotheses. Uh, if an idea is getting put in medical hypotheses instead of just some standard journal, it is fundamentally because there is not yet enough rigorous evidence to support the idea being put forth. It's a hypothesis, not a theory. So that's what the journal's for. Um, and so, like, yeah, there, there's some pretty wacky stuff that gets published in there. And that's fine, because, like, sometimes science is advanced by wacky ideas. So that that's not a problem with the journal itself. You just need to be aware of it when you see a paper is published in medical hypotheses. Like, you should evaluate it with a separate set of criteria and just a lot more skepticism than you than you would to evaluate ideas put forth in most other journals. The other thing to note, specifically with regards to the article itself, is, uh, you know, I, I briefly summarized the claims it was putting forth. You wear a mask, uh, it's going to cause respiratory acidosis, and then uh, a bunch of scary things will happen downstream from said respiratory acidosis. So that that's the argument it's putting forth. That is the hypothesis. Mask, acidosis, bad shit. Like that's the that's the train of logic it was using. Um, and so, you know, clearly 
if you want to be able to make that point and make it well, you need to make sure you have good support for the initial claim that wearing a mask will cause respiratory acidosis, which might then cause other scary stuff. So I, I encountered someone sharing this study in the wild, uh, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Let me look into it. Uh, and so, you know, once I identified the argument they were trying to make, I was like, okay, let's check out the sources they're using to support this argument. And for their core claim that wearing a mask causes respiratory acidosis, they cited four sources. Three of them were textbooks that didn't provide page numbers. Um, I actually own one of the textbooks, and I uh, checked out the chapter on respiratory physiology and confirmed that it didn't say anything about the effects of wearing a mask on <laughs> on respiratory acidosis. Uh, basically just said, like, if you hypoventilate, uh, respiratory acidosis will occur. So uh, I'm assuming that the textbooks don't have, like, strong support for that. And in terms of original research, those are tertiary sources. In terms of primary sources cited to support that claim, there was exactly one study, uh, and it was in in-stage renal patients uh, undergoing, um, uh, what do you call dialysis? it? Dialysis? Yeah, yeah. Uh, undergoing dialysis wearing N95s. So, you know, your kidneys, very important for acid base balance, acid-base regulation, uh, it's, it's very possible that in-stage renal patients presently undergoing dialysis, maybe bad things would happen if they wore in 95s 24-7. There was a primary source to back up that claim. Yeah. You can't generalize, especially when you're dealing with fucking, fucking acid-base balance stuff, you can't generalize from in-stage renal patients to the entire goddamn population. You can't do that. Yeah. Uh, they have a condition that affects their ability to regulate blood pH. Uh, so anyway, uh, that, <laughs> that was the only shred of primary literature to actually back up the claim. So in addition to, you know, maybe needing to be a little bit more skeptical because it was published in Medical Hypotheses, there are gradations of stuff that are published in medical hypotheses. Like some, sometimes you uh, support your argument really well. Sometimes you don't support your argument well at all. Even by the standards of medical hypotheses, it was an exceptionally poorly and weakly argued and sourced paper. Uh, well, I've got an update for you. I've got an update for you. So props to Elsevier. They actually, it's already retracted on the site and they actually rare, one of the rare occasions they gave a good explanation for it. So, uh, point number one, a broader review of the existing evidence clearly shows that approved masks, uh, approved masks, uh, are are effective in the prevention of COVID-19 point number two, the manuscript, uh, misquotes and selectively cites uh, references number 16, 17, 25, and 26, all misquoted. Uh, table one, uh, they just said all the data in the table is unverified, and there, <laughs> <laughs> and there are several speculative statements. Uh, so like... <laughs> so like, th- that's the thing, though. It's not like he like said, hey, I tell you what, if you look at this body of literature at just the right angle, it's just like, dude, it was just really bad stuff. Yeah. 
so anyway, it it's very disappointing that like so for example, table one, all the data in the table is unfair unverified, and there are several speculative statements. References 16, 17, 25, 26 are all misquoted. Uh, you know, some of these comments just simply lack face validity. Glad to see it in the retraction notice, but where was it in the reviewer comments? Yeah. If they are allegedly helpful. I mean, you you, you don't want to get me on my peer review rant. <laughs> no. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So that was just... Uh, a trend that is becoming more common is like, you know, all the big brain experts say, sure, put it in a journal. And then like literally anybody on Twitter who is like awake when they're reading uh, the headline tweeted is like, oh, well, that's not true. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then there's a big stink uh, and eventually sometimes a retraction. You know, another area where this happened, uh, this is a, a constantly evolving situation. <laughs> So, <laughs> Mercola, uh, who was recently... Uh, the good doctor. Yeah, he recently was honored on the Mount Rushmore of disinformation. <laughs> he, some, some, some people put out this thing. It was called the Disinformation Dozen. It was like the 12 people who were putting out the, the most and worst disinformation related to vaccines yeah like 12 accounts were uh were putting out information that accounted for 65 percent of the total shares of misinformation related to COVID on social media yeah so mercola was featured on that list of 12 uh you might know his work from pubmed the peer-reviewed literature (laughs) uh he recently published a paper uh, that that made a number of claims about vitamin D, and you know specifically in relation to COVID nineteen. Well, though you know he also made a lot of claims about vitamin D and COVID nineteen on his website, on his blog, in articles, and the Food and Drug Administration was not excited about his content on his personal website. So the FDA sent him a public letter uh, that flagged some content uh, uh, relating vitamin D to COVID-19 risk. And uh, so the FDA was like, bro, you're not allowed to have this stuff in the places you have it on your blog. Uh, And so... The update today, you, you sent me, he, he announced on his article uh, or on his website that he was removing all those articles. And uh, the, I, the, the man, the line that stuck out to me, though, is that he was like, and, and I'm going to remove my peer-reviewed paper on this topic from my website. Uh, but as far as I know, it's still available on PubMed, still available in the journal, which is a pretty wild thing. Uh and, and that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. So one one thing to point out, like to to put a fine point on this, yeah, Mercola removed the study from hosting it on his website, but it is still in a journal. That that means the journal is is nutrients, by the way, an an MDPI journal. That means that. Mercola's website, at least in this instance, has higher editorial standards <laughs> than Nutrients. So that's not just any blog. That's fucking Joseph Mercola's blog, which is incredible. 
Um, this is a very abridged version of my peer review rant. Uh, a very cool thing about science is that, you know, we're interested in quantifying things. We want to know if things work or not. If a new supplement comes on the market, you say, hey, let's do a placebo-controlled trial to see if this supplement does anything. So, you know, if peer review is one of the things that's a cornerstone of the scientific process that is supposed to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff and improve the quality of, of uh, articles before they're published... Ideally, you'd want to be able to quantify, does this work, and if so, how well? Um, no one really thought to do that until somewhat recently. I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he was the longtime editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, very prestigious journal, uh, and he, he kind of got a hunch that peer review wasn't working that well. And so once he stepped down as editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, he made it his you know, scientific mission to do a little meta-science meta and study how well does peer review work. Uh, and the cliff notes are not great. Um, but I think it's also worth noting how peer review, as we currently conceive of it, became a thing. So science existed a long time before peer review. Um, they used to call it refereeing, and it used to be that uh, journals were purely refereed by the by their editor in chief, uh, for the most part. Um, so you know the editor in chief would be someone who was like a world leading expert in whatever field the journal was publishing stuff in, and so like they could tell for themselves, like, hey, is this good stuff? Is it not? Uh, but then basically, you know, the scope of journals widened, uh, the total number of articles submitted increased, and so uh, they started needing to bring in additional people from time to time to look at some articles that, you know, might be outside uh, the realm of expertise for the editor-in-chief, uh, or, you know, just to get a second opinion on it. But for a long time, it still wasn't a super, super common practice, Uh a famous example of this is one of Einstein's papers. I believe the one where uh, the the, the uh, paper that talked about the theory of special relativity. He submitted it to a journal, and the editor in chief was like, "Ah, you know, this seems pretty cool, but I really need to send it out for a second opinion." Uh, when Einstein heard that. He'd never been peer-reviewed before because most people at the time never got peer-reviewed. And he was insulted so much that he retracted his submission and submitted to another journal. Because he was like, fuck you, dude. Like, I submitted to this journal because I thought you knew enough shit to be able to review this. But it, if if you and your dumbass can't review it <laughs> and you think you need a second opinion, I'm just going to submit it somewhere else. That's a that's a loose paraphrase. No, that's a quote, um, I believe. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it wasn't common. Um, and then, uh, you know, 20th century rolls along. Science starts becoming more and more politicized. And in the United States, uh, Congress got, uh, you know, not super pleased with the scientific establishment and were proposing congressional oversight of scientific publishing, um, which, to be clear, I would not be a fan of. Uh, and... <laughs> scientists also weren't a fan of that. Uh, and so in an effort to try to make science seem uh, more neutral and less political, 
they basically said like, hey, you know, we're, we're going to bring on independent experts to review all of the stuff getting published. Uh, we're going to call it peer review and it's going to be great. Uh, and that was enough to get Congress off the back of major scientific publishing in America. Um, and, and, you know, it, it wasn't completely unheard of by then. Like in the 1920s, very few papers were refereed. When this was happening, I believe it was the 70s, like more papers were being refereed. Uh, but it wasn't as it it wasn't as common and it wasn't as regimented as it is currently. But that's when they basically said, like, OK, we're going to institute this formal system of peer review. Uh, so please don't do congressional oversight of all scientific publishing. Uh, and so Congress was like, OK, cool. But it's worth noting that uh, the incarnation of peer review as we currently have it it wasn't a system where a bunch of scientists got together and said, okay, let's test out several ideas to try to make the published research as good as possible, accept all the good papers, none of the bad papers and improve manuscripts as much as possible before publishing. It, it wasn't, there wasn't a process like that. Uh, it was basically just a spur of the moment stopgap measure to say, how can we get Congress to stop breathing down our throats uh, and it worked, and we've just stuck with it. Um, so yeah, peer review is trash. <laughs> it really is. Uh, but I, yeah. I said that would be the short version of my peer review rant, but that was like this eighty percent version. But yeah, I, I guess to to wrap up my conclusion of that segment, I, I just find it a little bit counterintuitive that a lot of people present peer review as like, oh, well, we'll check all the important stuff and make sure it's good enough to call science, but. Lately, it seems like it's completely inverted and people just publish stuff. And then the general public who honestly lacks the expertise to really dig into the details is like, uh, this clearly isn't very good, is it? And they're like, all right, fine. We'll, you know, we'll have to retract it then. Uh, so keep your eye out for that. And don't just because someone has a PubMed link, uh, that seems to support their point. Unfortunately, uh, it, it requires a little more digging before we accept that at face value. Uh, okay, Greg, uh, there are a number of questions for you here. Do you want to go ahead and just uh, knock out some of these Q&A questions? I'm removing the one I had for you because it, it's simply a waste of time. But uh, well, Now I'm curious. What was it? it? It was very literally a waste of time. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> uh, All right. Yeah, so why don't you go ahead and knock out some of these Q&As so that the people will be informed. Yeah, let's do it. So a uh, question from Tommy Stefano, I believe from Facebook. Uh, by the way, if you want to ask questions for the podcast, uh, we don't really look at the Google form that much anymore. Uh, before we record, I throw a thread up, uh, in the Facebook group that is stronger by science community and on the subreddit that is reddit.com slash R slash stronger by science. Uh, and those are the best places to ask your question. So anyway, Tommy, uh, I believe from Facebook asks, uh, is training for strength and hypertrophy simultaneously really as useless as some people make it out to be? Either in the same body parts or different, say hypertrophy upper body, strength lower body, on the same days or different days, etc. cetera, uh, more so for recreational intermediate lifters. So basically asking, uh, you know, some people say that it's a waste of time to try to simultaneously train for strength and hypertrophy. Uh, are they correct? 
My answer to that is no, uh, and <laughs> I kind of want to know who who says it's useless to to train for strength and hypertrophy at the same time. Um, so I first to approach this from a hypertrophy perspective because my answer there is shorter. Um, you know, if you're training to uh, peak strength in you know a few weeks or whatever, so you're training with. Uh, really heavy near max loads that are probably going to cause quite a bit of stress and will um, significantly limit how much per session training volume you can do. Uh, yeah, that will probably limit your rates of muscle growth, uh, but also, you know, that that doesn't need to be, you don't need a ton of that to train for strength. Like, uh, unless you're a very, very highly trained strength athlete already, you can probably get away with just doing like three or four weeks of that every four to six months or something. Uh, and mostly just trying to get big and like you will get stronger in the process. Most of the time you're just doing pure hypertrophy training. So, you know, doing a little specific strength work on a hypertrophy program shouldn't negatively impact hypertrophy training that much. Uh, you know, Maybe it would if you're, uh, you know, nearing your absolute genetic muscular limits. But for 99% of people, like, nah, that'll be fine. As far as strength goes, uh, in terms of long-term strength development, I think you should be doing a lot of hypertrophy training. Uh, you know, you will be able to contract your muscles harder if you build a lot of contractile proteins, uh, which means doing some hypertrophy training. Uh, so, you know, when I think strength training, I think, you know, you're doing, again, depending on if you're trying to maintain weight to stay in a weight class, your your level of development, you know, you, you will definitely need to be doing some very heavy, lower volume, highly specific strength work. Uh, but you should be doing a lot of hypertrophy work a lot of the time. Again, especially uh, Tommy's asking about recreational intermediate lifters. Yeah, if you're trying to maximize strength development, you absolutely need to be doing some hypertrophy training uh, and <laughs> building muscle as long as you don't just get super, super out of practice with uh, low rep, uh, high load specific strength skills strength is going to go up. So I, I think for most people, um, a very, very reasonable way to approach training, you can go one of two ways for simultaneous hypertrophy and strength development. Either you can just do a hypertrophy program and work some heavy singles in from time to time. And we're not talking, you know, true one rep max attempts, but like, you know, hit a single around 90, 92% from time to time. That's heavy enough that it will help you maintain and build skill with really heavy near max loads. And then you just train to get big and you will get stronger. And, uh, you know, a couple heavy singles from time to time, uh, again, not true one rep maxes, that's not going to impact your recovery enough to really have any meaningful impact on the sorts of volumes you can handle for hypertrophy training. So that's one way you could approach it. Another way you could approach it is kind of a block periodization approach or, in a, or a linear periodization approach. And basically, you know, like uh, three quarters of your training blocks will be kind of uh, lower load, 
higher to moderate rep hypertrophy style training. Uh, and, you know, if you have strength in the back of your mind, maybe you're kind of keeping that on the more on the five to 10 reps per set range instead of like uh, eight to 15 or something like that. So maybe like slightly on the heavy end of the quote unquote typical hypertrophy range. Uh, but, you, you know, train like that probably 75% of the time. And then uh, every fourth block or so work in a more specific strength block. So you're doing hypertrophy training most of the year, uh, but still doing some blocks to focus on strength development. Both of those two approaches will be great, both long-term and, and really short-term too, uh, for both strength and hypertrophy. Again, for most people who aren't already uh, highly elite, highly specialized athletes in one of those two pursuits. Uh, second question from Matt Sincata. Uh, ooh, ooh, th- this was one of the ones on the, the outline for the last episode that I didn't get to, and I was very excited about it. Uh, hey, Greg and Trex, you don't need to address questions about uh, biomechanics to Trex. Uh, hope you're doing well. I've seen it suggested that the study, quote, effect of barbell weight on the structure of the flat bench press, close quote, by Kroll and Golis, suggests that when you get towards max weight in the bench press, the triceps become the prime movers. This is used as justification to focus on variations and accessory movements for the tries rather than the pecs. Do you see validity in this claim, and how does other research on this topic support or refute this claim? Uh, and yeah, so I, I was excited to see the study because I actually do have a pretty strong take about this. Uh, so first, to start with, uh, what happened in the Kroll and Golis study? Basically, what they did is they had people work up to one rep max bench presses in 10% increments. So uh, they did a set at 70%, a set at 80%, a set of 90%, and a set at 100% of their one rep max. Uh, and they looked at muscle EMG for uh, the pecs, anterior, anterior delts, and the long head of the triceps in uh, all of those lifts. And what they found is that the increase in EMG from the moderate loads, like 70-80% of 1RM, the increase in EMG from those lighter loads to maximal loads, the increase was the largest in the triceps, Basically, no increase at all in the pecs uh, and a notable increase in the anterior deltoids, but not nearly as large as the triceps. Uh, and so you you look at that and you see like, oh, okay, as the loads go up, uh, triceps EMG ramps up a ton. Uh, therefore, you know, at max loads, your triceps become the prime movers. Uh, seems logical enough, but... Uh, I think it's misleading. First, I don't necessarily know that you could make those claims from EMG in the first place, but even if we assume that you could, I think the important thing to note is that they were measuring EMG in the long head of the triceps. The long head of the triceps is a biarticular muscle, meaning it crosses both the elbow and the shoulder. And one thing to note about biarticular muscles is that when you're performing exercises where uh, one of the functions of the muscle would be quote-unquote beneficial for exercise performance and one of the other functions would be quote-unquote negative for performance of that exercise, uh, the nervous system tends to de-emphasize recruitment of that biarticular muscle. Uh, So a great example of that is the rectus femoris in the squat. So 
Uh, rectus femoris activation in the squat, not particularly high. Rectus femoris is a quad muscle, so it's a knee extensor, which is great for squatting, but your rectus femoris is also a hip flexor. And in the squat, you're trying to extend your hips. And so, uh, especially with lower loads, your vasti muscles, your vastus lateralis, medialis, intermedius, very, very active, contributing a lot to the squat. Your rectus femoris isn't that active, but uh, activity does ramp up as you approach near max loads. Uh, I think the same thing is happening with the long head of the triceps in the bench press. So it is an elbow extensor, which is good, uh, but it's also a shoulder extensor, which is bad. You're doing shoulder flexion when you're bench pressing. So I think basically your, your nervous system isn't extra emphasizing the long head of your triceps as you approach a max. I think what they were sh- what they were finding was that your nervous system is de-emphasizing recruitment of the long head of your triceps when you're benching lower loads. And so since it's de-emphasizing long head of triceps recruitment with low loads, you see that large relative increase when you work up to a max. Uh, and you know we don't just have to base this on EMG. We have longitudinal evidence showing that bench press training uh, is not particularly great uh, for growing the long head of the triceps. So there was a study by Brandau and colleagues uh, that will be linked in the show notes. Uh, came out a year or two ago, pretty recent, uh, but it was looking at growth in all uh, all three heads of the triceps after bench press training. Found that the bench press was really, really good for growing the lateral head of the triceps, uh, but caused basically no growth in the long head of the triceps. So Basically, I think the Kroll and Golis study was finding that, you know, at 70% of 1RM, long head of your triceps really not doing much, uh, but then your nervous system does call on it a little bit more when you're actually attempting a one rep max bench press. Um, so I think a better study to look to look at, so uh, basically, all said and told, you know, long head of your tricep not a particularly important muscle for the bench press. The lateral head of your triceps is the tricep head that's primarily doing tricep shit in the bench press. That's that's going to be your primary elbow extensor. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, a better study to look at is uh, uh, Dr. Michael Duffy's dissertation study, uh, which will also be linked in the show notes. Um a paper from this research project was published, but I don't think the data I'm about to reference did wind up getting published, but, you know, it's there in the dissertation, cleared the committee. One thing to note, uh, committee review, generally more stringent than peer review, uh, so <laughs> do with that what you will. Uh, but anyway, so it, uh, uh, Duffy looked at basically the same thing as Kroll and Golis. Uh, So changes in pecs, anterior delts, and lateral head of the triceps, EMG, uh, as weights increased from submaximal to maximal, uh, and basically found that in in all three of those muscles, the uh, increase in EMG when going from submaximal to maximal loads uh, was pretty similar for all three muscles. So, you know, you didn't see a disproportionate increase in lateral head of the triceps, EMG, uh, as loads increased. It was basically the same as it was for the delts and, and the pecs. Um, so anyway, I think basically the Kroll and Gola study was just confirming what we know about biarticular muscles, that uh, they're not generally particularly active in compound exercises with relatively low loads, but 
you know, they do contribute a little bit more at max loads. I, I think that's what they were finding. They weren't necessarily finding that your triceps become the prime mover uh, at max loads. I think it was just an artifact of them looking at the long head of the triceps instead of the lateral head. All right, moving on. Jer Chapman asks, This is bizarre, but it popped into my head today. Are there types of muscles that are resistant to hypertrophy? Could you get a jacked tongue if you apply sufficient volume and load to it? If not, are calves made of the same stuff as tongues? Funny, serious question. Okay, so um, I'm going out in left field to answer this one. Uh, I think tongues can get pretty huge, actually. Yeah, this set you on a collision course with a great deal of tongue-related research. Uh, I-, I witnessed as you kind of chased further and further down that that hole yeah 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 so um one thing to note about tongues tongues are a lot bigger than you think they are uh just google image search uh tongue muscle anatomy or something like that i I think when people think tongue they think uh you know a a little fan-shaped thing within the the normal confines of your mouth but no your tongue is a big ass muscle uh, it originates on your hyoid bone, which is kind of like near your Adam's apple if you're a dude. Um, so like it, it originates way down there, has a big, thick muscle body. And, you know, the, the part of it you see that you can stick out of your mouth, that is proverbially speaking, just the tip of the iceberg. So it's a very big muscle. Um, and I, th- th- so this question got me to look at, uh, can tongue muscle hypertrophy occur and basically like do tongues vary in size because like yeah I I didn't expect to find uh, like a resistance training study where you apply progressive overload to the tongue so first off I just wanted to see can tongues vary in size Uh, and that led me to a body of literature looking at the causes of sleep apnea Uh, so there are various uh, etiologies of sleep apnea, but the most common is obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and that's where, you know, something is blocking the back of your throat. So you can't breathe particularly well when, when you fall asleep. Uh, and it turns out, you know, there, there are various structures back there that could be at fault. Uh, but it seems like probably the primary one is your tongue. Uh, and obesity is a, uh, common, risk factor for sleep apnea. One of the things I didn't realize, this blew my fucking mind. You have fat deposits in your tongue. Uh, I did not know that. I thought tongues were just 100% lean tissue, but no, you have fat deposits in your tongue. And one of the reasons why risk of obstructive sleep apnea increases with obesity is that the fat deposits in your tongue grow. Your tongue is physically larger uh, and it <laughs> impedes more on the back of your throat. Also, um, like the, the other tissues around the back of your throat also have fat deposits. So that contributes as well. But a, a lot of it seems to be tongue driven. So there was uh, studies looking at uh, obese people who reported or who had confirmed obstructive sleep apnea compared to obese people who didn't. And they basically found the folks with obstructive sleep apnea just had bigger fucking tongues than the one than the ones that didn't, uh, and those tongues had substantially larger fat deposits. So um, that's not related to the answer to this question at all. But it got me thinking. 
about steroids because uh, obstructive sleep apnea is also really common in steroid users. Uh, and one of the things that people note is that a big neck is uh, another thing that's associated with sleep apnea. And that's always driven me crazy because I was just thinking about it. Like, I know where your fucking trachea is. Like, having really thick cervical extensors doesn't really seem like it should be doing anything to, to block up your trachea. So, uh, you know, like, I, I knew that large necks were associated with a uh, risk of obstructive sleep apnea, but it didn't make sense to me. Like, that connection didn't make sense. And so now, now I'm just kind of thinking that, like, people with big necks either probably have a, a fair amount of body fat and maybe have a fat deposition pattern that's kind of like head and neck centric, where maybe if you have a lot of fat around your neck, you're also more likely to deposit fat uh, in the tissues in your throat and also your tongue. Um, or, you know, you do a lot of steroids. And if you're doing steroids uh, enough to, to make your neck grow without neck training, maybe that is inherently causing uh, tongue hypertrophy because like that's another skeletal muscle uh, and maybe that's what's giving you sleep apnea. Um, I couldn't find primary research to back that up. Like I couldn't find a longitudinal study looking at the uh, longitudinal effects of anabolic steroids on tongue mass or anything like that. Uh, but I did find some, uh, some uh, anesthesiology, just like kind of best practices where they were saying like, if someone is going under and they look really muscular, you should you should ask them if they're using steroids because uh, if they are, um, that that is uh, going to increase their risk of like not being able to breathe once they go under. So like you might need to do some other shit, uh, and w specifically with regards to them having larger tongues. So basically, like I don't know, all of that makes me think that. Tongues are just like any other muscle. Uh, they they, pro they probably grow in response to steroids. Uh, they, they therefore would probably grow in response to resistance training. I kind of I kind of think that other than having way more degrees of freedom, they're they're just really not that different from other skeletal muscles. Um, so yeah, I think skeletal muscles can get big. And therefore, your calves can probably also get big. Ultimately, this comes back to the calves. Uh, but yeah, the, the stuff I was reading about sleep apnea blew my mind. I had I had no idea your tongue came into it, but a lot of it seems to be pretty tongue-centric. Oh, also another potential implication of that. To be clear, this entire segment, including what I'm about to say, I'm not a doctor. Don't take this as medical advice. All standard disclaimers apply. Uh, but one of the questions I get asked a lot is like, hey, you know, having a big neck, that seems to be a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea. So like if I try to do some neck training and get a big neck, is that going to give me sleep apnea? Uh, to be clear, I don't know. I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying it won't. Um, but if this seems to be a very tongue centric thing uh, and not necessarily related to so, like, if neck size isn't the causative factor, if it's more, like, correlative for other things, like, if a big neck is indicative of fat deposits in the head, neck, throat region, or if it's indicative of steroid use, which is causing tongue hypertrophy, but the neck size itself 
isn't necessarily inherently because of obstructive sleep apnea. If that is the case, again, not medical advice, not saying it is, not saying it's not, but if that's the case, then uh, neck training itself per se uh, should be fine, I would think. Anyway, a lot of stuff about tongues, man. Uh, just to reiterate, Google image search tongue anatomy. They're fucking huge. Um, okay, moving on. David Meverden uh, asks, glucosamine and chondroitin, a good supplement for older lifters. Will it prevent or repair any joint wear and tear? Uh, so that's a good question. And I first came across a 2010 systematic review and meta-analysis uh, from Wandel and colleagues. And uh, the basic conclusion is, uh, this is a quote, compared with placebo, glucosamine, chondroitin, and their combination do not reduce joint pain or have an impact on narrowing of joint space. Health authorities and health insurers should not cover the cost of these preparations, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so basically it found that uh, when reviewing all of the literature that existed in 2010, didn't seem like glucosamine and chondroitin really did much of anything. Uh, however, I found a, uh, a study that, or, or also a meta-analysis that just for whatever reason didn't uh, show up as highly in the searches, uh, barely came across this, almost stopped looking before I found it. Uh, but a more recent meta-analysis from 2018 uh, from Zoo and colleagues uh, looked at 26 uh, articles describing 30 uh, distinct trials. Um, and so basically it did find that glucosamine did some stuff and chondroitin did some other stuff. Um so uh, the conclusion was, given the effectiveness of uh, blah, 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 one second, uh, glucosamine showed effect on stiffness outcome, uh, chondroitin is more effective than placebo on relieving pain and improving physical function, uh, not many studies looking at the combination therapy, most of the studies that looked at both together didn't find significant effects, but there were fewer combination studies than just glucosamine or just chondroitin. Uh, so unless they have inhibitory effects on each other, you know, maybe they'd be more effective in tandem. But basically, state of the literature as of 2010 is uh, not enough evidence to say that they do much of anything. By 2018, few more studies had been published, a little more statistical power. When looking at a wide range of clinical outcomes, uh, Chondroitin seems to have a small effect on pain and physical function, and glucosamine seems to have a small effect for reducing stiffness. Neither are particularly notable. Um, so my, I mean, my, <laughs> my number one advice is if you're asking about this in relation to uh, pain or function issues, uh, talk to a physical therapist or a doctor. Um but just my read of the literature as it is now, you know, they, they seem to have either no side effects or very, very mild side effects. Uh, maybe some GI discomfort if you use really high dosages. Uh, and they may have a small beneficial effect for reducing stiffness, uh, decreasing pain a little bit. Uh, but don't, don't expect a night and day difference from them. So, 
you know, may not do anything. If they do have an effect, it's probably positive, but probably fairly small. One thing related to uh, that meta-analysis, I noticed in the title, it seems to be specifically related to osteoarthritis patients. Oh, yeah, yeah. That that is worth noting. Uh, so, yeah, the the evidence that shows efficacy is in osteoarthritis patients. Um, so, so David was asking about older lifters. Uh, I mean, most people, when they get old enough, they have osteoarthritis in at least one or two joints. (laughs) So in that context, uh, you know, older lifter and lifter with osteoarthritis, eh, there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I'm in my thirties for God's sakes. That, (laughs) that is true. Uh, but no, that, that is worth noting. Um, I I wasn't able to find much evidence that it does stuff for people who don't have osteoarthritis, but if you do, maybe it has uh, a small positive effect. All right, uh, not a llama AMA asks uh, indicators or kind of ask kind of statement. Uh, what are the indicators that one needs extra conditioning for strength and hypertrophy? Uh, so I. If you asked me this a few years ago, I probably would have given a different answer. Um, but I think the uh, I, I, so I think the um, general sign is just that you've reached a point where you need more volume to continue making progress than you can either comfortably get through in a training session or that you can recover from. So to be clear, uh, I think that, In general, your best approach is to start with, you know, fairly low to moderate levels of training volume, see where that gets you, uh, and then increase as needed. So, you know, not just jumping to the highest levels of training volume that you can survive straight from the jump. But, you know, if your training volume is gradually drifting up over time uh, and you eventually reach the point where you're not making more gains and you're having real, real difficulty uh, getting through your training sessions or recovering from them, maybe that's an indication that you need to do some conditioning. But then the question is, what kind of conditioning should you do? And I used to think, uh, you know, keep training how you want, but like, eh, maybe, maybe throw some low intensity cardio into the mix. And in general, I am still a fan of very low intensity cardio. And by that, I mean, just going for walks pretty regularly it's good for a lot of stuff, good vibes, get your step count up, not die young, all good things. Uh, but in terms of actual training outcomes, I kind of think the best approach for most people is just kind of to take a step down the intensity ladder. So if you're having trouble tolerating the volume you need of heavy, lower volume strength training, uh, and you want to do some conditioning that will improve that. If you're used to doing triples, just do some sets of five to eight for a while. Uh, that will be more total tonnage. It will be more metabolically stressful. It's still specific to what you're trying to do. Uh, and that will ha- that will cause a conditioning response where when you go back to triples, they'll be easier. You'll be able to do more without getting as tired. Uh, and if you're having issues with hypertrophy training, you know, you're doing sets of eight to 12 and... You're, you're having issues with the volume there. Uh, take another step down the intensity ladder. You know, instead of sets of 8 to 12, do sets of 12 to 15. 
maybe fuck around and go up to 20 to 25 sometime. Uh, exact same principle. So, you know, you're going to get more reps. Uh, there's going to be a greater metabolic cost per set. Uh, it's it's going to be tough, it's especially for leg training. It's going to suck pretty bad. Uh, but that is specific conditioning work. And, I mean, in that case, it will still be a great direct stimulus for hypertrophy. So you're you're not even having to put your main goal on the back burner while you're doing it. Uh, you know, if, if you get to the point that you can pretty comfortably do, you know, four sets of 15 instead of four sets of eight, when you go back to four sets of eight, it's going to be a lot easier. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for most people... Uh, the, the type of conditioning that, you know, shouldn't be the only tool in your toolkit, but should be the first tool you reach for in your toolkit most of the time is just continuing to train basically like you have been, but just taking a step down the intensity ladder. Uh, and that will be good specific conditioning work for most folks. Okay. Uh, and this, this last one, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll read it and we can see if we want to talk about it or not. Sure. Um, this is a question that I feel like we could do half an episode on getting really into the research. I have not done any literature search for this at all. I don't think Trex has either. Uh, so we're going to read this question and just give our vibes based answer to it. So Bright Red Spud asks, how important is good food really? It seems like I often hear vague comments that good nutrition is important. Guidelines all suggest unprocessed grains and lots of vegetables. I cook my own meals, but it's usually best effort vegetables and filling out my calories with ice cream and cookies. So what am I actually leaving on the table? 0.69% of my possible strength gains? 10-year loss of expected life due to some terrible vitamin deficiency induced by eating too much rice? Will doubling the amount of vegetables I eat produce a profound experience, like discovering eight hours of sleep per night? Uh, so yeah, basically just asking, like, food quality, what do? Is it good? And if so, how good? Uh, that's tough. Like you said, we could probably do, a, probably do like half an episode on it, because we could talk about processed versus unprocessed foods, or I guess more accurately the degree of processing with foods uh fiber intake micronutrient intake uh specific sugars that, that might find their way into your diet the importance of the food matrix outside of just the nutrients that make up the food uh you you could look at that on a variety of different levels uh but what, what what's your initial vibe i do have kind of a guiding statement but but I want to hear your vibes first. Uh, I mean, so I, I think it's going to depend on two things primarily. Uh, I think, so I, I'm thinking about this purely in terms of strength and hypertrophy. You know, uh, I, I do think it's pretty clear that, you know, eating vegetables and minim minimally processed foods, eh, probably a pretty good idea for longevity. Uh, but in terms of, uh, like strength and hypertrophy outcomes, I think that, uh, it depends at least in part on generally how healthy are you just in general. So, uh, you know, age is going to be a component of that, uh, body composition is going to be a component of that, um, you know, and like what else, like when you, when you talk about eating like bad stuff, what do you mean? You know? So, 
Are, are you talking like McDonald's cheeseburgers? Or are you talking like, you know, I'm going to slam six beers a night and uh, cook all my food in pure trans fat? You know, so there's, um, well, so I guess that's three things. So like <laughs> when you talk about eating good versus bad, is it like generally decent, but more or less veggies? Or, you know, is it some like extreme worst possible diet type scenario? Uh, so I, I think like, you know, if you're eating generally okay, but not a ton of vegetables, you're generally healthy and active and fairly young otherwise. Uh, and the last thing, if you're, if you aren't dealing with like some very specific nutrient deficiency. So, you know, if for whatever reason, your diet's just purely devoid of zinc or something like that, uh, that that's a cofactor in a lot of important, uh, chemical reactions involved in metabolism. If you have a zinc deficiency, that's going to be some bad news uh, for performance and, and probably hypertrophy and body comp as well. But, you know, basically, if if you don't have some sort of major nutrient deficiency, if you're fairly young and healthy and your idea of a not great diet is still like kind of decent, but like maybe not as many fruits and vegetables as would be ideal, I think you'll generally be pretty fine. Uh, and not really, like, I think you'll feel better if you eat more fruits and vegetables, but in terms of strength and hypertrophy outcomes, I really don't think you'll be missing out on much, if any. Uh, but if you start tweaking some of those assumptions, like maybe you're a little bit older, uh, dealing with just like a higher baseline level of inflammation, uh, maybe the quote unquote bad diet is really bad. And we're talking about cleaning that up a lot. Or if you have some sort of major nutrient deficiency that a more well-rounded diet would correct, then then I do think it would have uh, potentially a, a pretty large impact on training outcomes. Yeah, I I, I largely agree with that. I, I think the the one additional statement I would add to it is that my perspective on this is not that bad foods are, you know, quote unquote bad foods are inherently deleterious i think the biggest threat of having a bad diet is more the lack of good things rather than the introduction of bad things uh in a lot of cases so if you're eating foods in a you know subjectively bad diet that is displacing important nutrients uh th then that's where we start to run into issues but like a great example is you know you think of uh you know an endurance athlete, for example, who's got a base diet that's pretty healthy, but they're uh, about to do a pretty high volume phase of their training. At a certain point, it's just like, we need to supplement your diet with calories. And so adding in foods that are hedonically very enjoyable and calorie dense and don't have a lot of micronutrients it's not necessarily a bad thing because we're just trying to supplement a diet with some form of calories that doesn't feel like a chore to consume. So when it comes to any discussion about food quality or diet quality, I always like to make sure we kind of frame it and say that like, unless you're eating just absurd amounts of, you know, ethanol and trans fats, like you said, it's not that we're worried about the introduction of calorically dense foods it's that we're worried about the absence of the good stuff we need to make sure that the good stuff's in there and that's more from a that's more from a health and well-being perspective than necessarily from a making gains perspective 
because uh, like you said, as long as you don't have any major deficiencies and and stuff like that, uh, I mean, I know what I ate like when I was 19 and I, I made plenty of gains and it was not a vegetable heavy diet. So like I, I could say from personal experience, if you're hitting the weight hard and eating plenty of calories, plenty of protein, and you're not just critically deficient in any particular nutrient, you, you can make gains, uh, but you might also, like you said, feel like crap. Uh, but yeah, I think we should circle back to that in the future sometime and take a take a closer look at some of the components of that because uh, we could go on for quite some time. But I think we are just about out of time for today's episode, so it's probably time to play us out. And I'm going to start out the segment to play us out here by putting two things on notice. And putting something on notice basically means they're on the, you know, like WADA has the watch list. It's like not banned yet but they're keeping an eye on it. You're one step away from being put on blast. Exactly, yeah. So if if you're on notice, it means that you've captured my attention for an unfavorable reason, uh, and you are officially on the watch list. So number one, bay leaves, total scam. I I was, so I make soup now for my meal prep. It's like a lentil-based soup. It's good stuff. I ran out of bay leaves, you know, this like, $75 container of bay leaves where you get like four leaves in it. And I was like, Oh, I'm out of bay leaves. What am I going to do? This recipe is going to suck. Oh, well, you know, I got to, I got to eat this week. So I make it. Didn't notice at all. Bay leaves do not do anything. They are a tax that is applied that purely, uh, preys on misinformation and your misunderstanding of what they do because they do literally nothing. So bay leaves, you're on notice. Another uh, thing that's on notice, in this case, a group of people, uh, this was brought to my attention in the Stronger by Science Facebook group. We've got people who are out there speeding up the podcast, listening to it at uh, 1.25, 1.5. In some cases, I think people even said two times the regular speed. The fastest I saw was 2.6. 2.6. And you might be thinking, well, that's a silly thing to be upset about, but all I would ask is that people respect what we put into our art. You know, uh, as the on-air talent, as the person who writes half the outline, and notably the person who does all the post-production, every single detail of the podcast is meticulously planned and thought through and stressed over. Uh, Pauses are put in artistically, the tempo of speech is important. So it it truly is like buying an original Rembrandt or a Van Gogh and just coloring over it and saying, ah, I thought it could have used more blue. It it is a huge slap in the face. Uh, So shame on all those who are listening to this at a very rapid pace right now. Um, I feel like I had something else to say about that, but it it has eluded me. So time for you to play us out with whatever you got. Yeah, so I I also have two things. Uh, So back by popular demand, we're going to talk about factors that influence what type of intermittent fasting you should do. Uh, On a recent episode of the podcast, we talked about uh, different intermittent fasting profiles based on your Myers-Briggs profile. Uh, This time, we're talking about a much more... (laughs) Uh, rigorously validated thing, and that is, of course, foot shape. <laughs> so, um, some of which exist, some don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, 
hopefully we could do, do you think you could uh maybe just like upload this picture to imger and put a imger link no but if you upload it to imger i can put the link <sighs> okay uh shoot me a message to remind me uh and I, I, I will do that um so anyway it uh yeah so apparently you can tell what type of intermittent fasting you should do based on how your foot is shaped and the noteworthy thing here is that i do not believe that two of these foot shapes exist <laughs> so there's a b c and d uh and first i'll i'll describe the real ones so that's b and c in b uh your your big toe and your uh second toe are about the same length and your third toe eh, kind of comparable and then your uh, fourth and fifth toe are are shorter uh, and kind of sloped down. Very normal foot shape. Uh, of these on here, that's what mine is closest to. Uh, C, also a real foot shape. Uh, you have a kind of normal size big toe. Your second toe is longer than your big toe, and then your other three are progressively shorter from there. Uh, I, I have seen feet that are shaped like that before. Normal foot. That's a totally fine foot to have. Um, then A and D don't exist. They don't exist in the wild. And also, I'll note, if if you look at this image and you say, oh, that's how my foot is shaped. I'm going to send Greg a picture as proof. Don't fucking do that. I'm not a foot guy. Foot guys are weird. Uh, also, putting foot guys on notice, that's weird. <laughs> um, but A, it's just a fucking 45 degree angle straight down uh and you know it's it's not just that the big toe is the longest followed by the second toe followed by the third also like the the metatarsals are varying in length in a very linear fashion uh very disconcerting not good doesn't exist it's not real uh and then d also bizarre foot i've never seen a foot that looks like this uh, big toe that's probably like three times longer than all of the rest, and then toes two through five, exact same length. That also, that foot doesn't exist. It's not real. Um, so anyway, just to start with, this is bullshit. They're saying that there are four distinct foot shapes and they all track to a particular intermittent fasting profile, but right, right off the jump, only two of the four are actual real foot shapes. Uh, and then, you know, once you've gotten past that, it is clear that the type of intermittent fasting you should do should absolutely be dictated by foot shape. I have no issue with that whatsoever. That's that's very uh, rigorously proven. We should get Grant uh, to talk about that. Grant Tinsley, <laughs> friend of the show. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like the, the fine science of dictating uh, eating patterns by foot shape. Don't denigrate that by trying to convince me that foot shapes exist that don't actually exist. Uh, you're not going to get that one by me. Yeah. So for people keeping score, you want to do intermittent fasting, listen to our episode with Dr. Grant Tinsley, who has done a lot of that research and then figure out your personality type and then figure out your foot shape. And that should be all the information you need. Perfect. Uh, and then I, I think the last thing I want to go out with uh, is a podcast recommendation. So uh, there is a podcast that is currently airing. Uh, I don't know how many more episodes there there are going to be in the run, but it's uh, it's a limited series. So you know there there will be a finite number of episodes. Uh, but it's called Operation Midnight Climax, 
And it is a story about uh, one part of the CIA's attempted mind control program, uh, which, you know, if, if you've done any reading about the CIA, you know about MKUltra. So it's it's like one facet of the MKUltra program. Um, absolutely insane story. Very, very riveting audio content. Um one thing I will say that's kind of a negative about it in my book is that it's like very scripted and produced. Uh, and I, I tend to prefer uh, podcasts that have a more casual and conversational tone. Uh, but the, the story itself is wild uh, and I'm very much enjoying it so far. So, you know, if you want a non-fitness related podcast to listen to, uh, check out Operation Midnight Climax. It has been very fun so far. So I remembered what I was going to say uh, when I was shaming the people that listen to the podcast at an elevated speed. Uh, first of all, clearly I'm joking. Our episodes are far too long. The idea that anyone's listening at normal tempo is painful. I'm sure most people speed it up to some degree. Uh, but I was, we were talking about this the other day and we get so many very toxic negative reviews of people who miss our sarcasm oh yeah yeah and we're like dude how how are you missing the sarcastic tone and i think a lot of it has to do with timing and tempo and cadence and so that actually helps me go to sleep at night thinking that less people truly hate me and more people hate me due to a simple misunderstanding because they're listening listening to the podcast at a faster speed so hopefully that's the case um, so if you like the show, by the way, uh, be sure to rate it, give it a good rating. If you don't like the show, uh, either don't rate it or make sure the rating is very funny so that we can discuss it on the show. Uh, but I think that does it for this particular episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.